On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that, that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not, not, he is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. May the God who inspired these words also speak to our hearts this morning. Thank you, Art. That is the story of what happened on Easter morning. This is Easter morning. The story up until this point is really rather believable. We had a man who was arrested, betrayed by a friend, taken through some trials, mockery of trials, but he went through the trials, and he was condemned to death. And so they used the traditional government system of the time, crucifixion. And everything went quiet on Saturday. But now the story gets to the point that the supernatural enters because we have some women going to the tomb and the tomb's empty. We have some disciples rushing to see what happened. And this part of the story gets to the part where Jesus rose from the dead. And I wonder, what do you do when you hear a story, an account, part of the Bible here, that is outside the ordinary and perhaps hard to believe? We see that that was the, the occasion of the disciples, of the women. They had trouble believing it. Well, as I was preparing for this sermon, it reminded me of a fictional story that I think illustrates the point. There was a father and a son who went to church. The young boy went to Sunday school and he heard the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Are you familiar with that? The Israelites were in Egypt. God took them out of Egypt. They went to the, uh, to the edge of the Red Sea and the Egyptians decided they didn't want all their slave labor leaving. And so the Egyptians mounted an army to come after them. God miraculously opened the Red Sea. 
the, the uh, Israelites went through, the Egyptians followed, and were drowned. Well, that's the story that the boy heard in Sunday school, and so he, he just flatly said to his father, I heard about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And the father, wanting to probe a little further, said, well, how did that happen? And the boy started to get excited. You could tell his imagination was going. He said, Moses and company were, were camped along the Red Sea, and they saw the Egyptian army rolling in with their tanks. And so Moses commanded the Israeli Air Force to fly low overhead and drop some bombs on them and drop some smoke bombs. And in the mist, the Israeli engineers could construct a pontoon bridge that crossed the Red Sea. They put detonation devices on those pontoons so that when the Egyptians tried to follow, they could detonate it and blow up the bridge and all the Egyptians would drown. Well, the father was quite amazed when he heard this story. And he said, is that really the way your teacher told the story? And the boy said, no, but you wouldn't believe the way she told it. <laughs> what do we do when we come to a part of the Bible that you wouldn't believe the way the Bible told it. What do we do with that? What is your reaction? Because the Easter story that starts now on Sunday is one of those parts of the Bible that is truly hard to believe. Someone dead for three days? Rising again? Could that be? True? And I wonder, what is the part that is hard to believe? Is it hard to believe that someone rises from the dead? Or is it hard to believe because if he did, it affects the whole rest of the Bible? Easter, you see, is the central part of the Bible. The Old Testament looks forward to it. The New Testament talks about it. And the implication for our lives is that our lives will be changed and we will be changed in the way that we live. So if Easter is true, then my life needs to be different. You see, it might be easier to simply say, it couldn't happen than for me to deal with the things that I need to deal with because it is true. So let's look a little bit at the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. There was certainly advanced warning for the disciples. It says that it was hard for them to understand scriptures. Now the scriptures that they had up to that point was the Old Testament. And certainly the Old Testament talks about a Savior coming, a Messiah coming, who would suffer and die and take the consequences for us. Isaiah 53 is one of those places. Psalms talks about it. But Jesus Himself mentioned several times that He was going to die 
and on the third day rise from the dead. The passages are listed for you on the screen. Let me read uh, Matthew 16.21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That he must be killed on the third day and rise again. These words are recorded also in the book of Mark and by the author Luke. And we find Jesus saying almost the same thing three times to his disciples. I want you to think about that. It was hard for them to accept. It was hard for them to understand. What kind of grid or framework would you have, would I have, to receive that teaching from Jesus? To die and on the third day rise again. But I also want you to think about the implications of Jesus making that statement. Because by making that statement, he put his very life on the line and the words that he had to say on the line that if they are true, he is God. If they are not true, he is not. He was very specific in the way that he said this. He said that he would die and on the third day rise again. Imagine somebody who wants to perpetuate a hoax. That he is God, but he's not really. He wants all his followers to be duped and to believe a lie. Would he say something like that? Would he be that specific? Three days and I'll rise again? Let me suggest that if I wanted to fool my followers and have them just think about it, I might say something like, at some point I will die. And after I die, you'll remember me as if I am alive. That's not what Jesus said. You see, any of us could say that. Surely all of us will die. And surely all of us will have somebody that remembers us as if we're alive. But Jesus said very specifically, on the third day, I will rise again. Consistent with the prophecy of the Old Testament. And so what we have is the disciples grappling with that truth. The truth of Easter. The truth that Jesus did say that. That Jesus did come back to life. I found a quote by Warren Wiersbe. He's an author, seminary professor. And he points out the reality of Easter and the essential nature of Easter. Because the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel message and a key doctrine in the Christian faith. It proves that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that His atoning work on the cross has been completed and effective. The empty cross and the empty tomb are God's receipts telling us that the debt has been paid. The empty cross and the empty tomb are essential to the Christian faith, the Christian doctrine, 
and to our lives. The cross is so important. And the empty tomb is that receipt that God paid it all. Think about the idea of the empty cross, the empty tomb as the receipt. I've been a little bit amazed, you know, coming to Hong Kong. I found out that when you go shopping in the stores, you don't get a bag. Unless you want to pay the little bag charge. And I've thought about that because in America, once you buy it, you, the sales clerk puts it in the bag. Sometimes they'll staple your receipt on top of the bag so you can't open it, really. But that bag is kind of the proof that as you're going out the door, that your item is paid for. But not here in Hong Kong, and I like Hong Kong. It, it's, you know, we don't need all those extra bags around. Um, but you get your little receipt. And if I went over here to Eon, and uh, perhaps I bought a pair of shoes or something, I would buy those shoes at a clerk somewhere inside the store, and then with no bag, the clerk would give me a receipt, I'd put that receipt in my pocket, the security at the door wouldn't see it, and I'm going out with my shoes. I've wondered, what happens if they stop me? How do I prove that those shoes are mine? I pull the receipt out, and I say, I've paid for these. These are mine. Do you see what we have by the empty cross and the empty tomb? We have the receipt that the things that we believe are not just a fairy tale or fiction. We have a receipt that says, I've gone before you, I've provided for you what you need. Your faith is not in vain. Your faith is following a living Savior, a risen Lord. This is not a hoax or a story. This is something real. Now, over the years, there have been various resurrection theories. There have been various ways to look at this because it's hard to understand the account that's given in the Bible. It doesn't fit my grid. The way that I normally see life, the glasses that I look through, the story does not fit. And so we have, uh, let's see. There we go. Um, we have a number of theories that have come up uh, over the years. Matter of fact, the first one started... Uh, even before Jesus rose from the dead. On the Friday night or Saturday, the religious leader said, somebody could come and steal the body. And this would be a, a tremendous difficulty for us. We've been trying to eradicate this teacher, and if his body is not there, there will be a problem. And so, by Saturday, there were Roman guards there, there was a seal on the tomb, the, uh, they had secured that tomb as securely as they possibly could. In fact, the, the tradition is that the Roman soldiers that were at the tomb would have paid for it with their life if somebody got past them. And so the idea that somebody stole the body, you have to 
come up with how do you answer some of these questions. You see, the little boy that came up with his own theory for how they crossed the Red Sea didn't realize that making up the story, he had to also have all the supporting evidence that went with that story. And the simple fact that the Israelites at that time in history did not have airplanes would destroy his story. So if you're going to take any one of these theories, then you also have to have all the supporting evidence to support those theories. And if the body had vanished, we need to ask, if the body was stolen, who took it? The Jewish leaders wouldn't have taken it. The Roman government wouldn't have taken it. And the disciples didn't even think he was going to come back to life, and they were afraid. Because... If the Roman government took it or the Jewish leaders took it, they could simply say, he didn't rise from the dead, here's the body. And the disciples ended up living, uh, living this for, the whole, for their whole life. They didn't take the body. Who did? And so there's not much support for that theory. Another theory is that maybe they just had a vision. Maybe the disciples just thought they saw Jesus. Well, some of the things you have to look at with that is the Bible says over 500 people saw Jesus in the resurrected body. So now instead of a few com uh, compassionate disciples, the women that were there, now you suddenly have to have 500 people that all had the same vision all had the same hallucination. And so it's difficult to see how this could be merely a vision. How could it be, uh, you know, maybe Jesus didn't really come back in a, in, a, in a physical body. But yet Thomas touched him, put his hand in his side. And Jesus ate fish with the disciples. Ghosts don't do that. Then there's the thought that, well, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. You know, they put Jesus in the tomb kind of hastily, and maybe when they came back to look for him, they went to the wrong tomb and one was open. It certainly doesn't seem like the women went to the wrong tomb, and it wasn't merely an empty tomb, just an empty tomb with nothing there. The grave clothes were there, empty. There was an angel, two angels there that spoke to them. It's hard to see if you're going to say that it's the wrong tomb, then how do you explain all of that? And then there's the theory that Jesus just revived. Sometimes it's called the swoon theory. Went down for a while, swooned, and came back up. So medically, you need to look at how this is going to work. Perhaps you could give that a little thought to yourself when you have gone through some kind of medical injury. Broken your arm, broken your leg, scraped your knee, that kind of thing. Supposedly, according to this theory, Jesus would have been crucified, and the crucifixion involved a, a beating with whips until his back was bleeding and raw and rare. Crown of thorns placed on his head to make the blood flow from his head. An agony of, of a night full of trials. And then when they finally put the cross on him and made him walk to Golgotha, he couldn't even carry the cross. Simon had to carry it for him. 
And so now with a physically abused body, his entire body, not only the things that happened before the crucifixion, but the nails that would have gone through his hands and his feet during the crucifixion, the sword that would have pierced his side and up into his lungs. And now you're going to tell me that in less than three days, he's suddenly strong enough to get up and vanish. He's gone. And so there are certainly difficulties with that theory. I think we're better off, I know we're better off, accepting the story that is there in the Bible. It's recorded in all four Gospels. All four writers investigated this, wrote down their account from eyewitnesses that Jesus is alive. I'd encourage you to, uh, uh, to read those at some point. Um, there are sermon notes. I should have mentioned that earlier. There are some things there. There's really nothing to fill in. I wanted you to uh, be able to, to write what you wanted to from that. Um, something else that, that's really rather interesting, and I've used this in my own preparation on the back of your sermon notes, is something called the Gospels Interwoven. And it takes the resurrection story from the four Gospels and weaves them together into one story. And so you can kind of read that and uh, see what all four writers had to say. I present to you that this is an accurate account of what God has done. And so we need to come to grips with that and say, what am I going to do with the reality of this account of Easter with Jesus rising from the dead? What do you do with this? And by the way, if you have questions... God is open for them. There's much more information that can be given, and I'd love to talk with you and point you to some resources if you have questions about any of this, because the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most provable historical events from that period of history. There is more evidence to prove it than almost any other event in history. But I want you to look at the reactions that the different people had about the resurrection. It's not cooperating. First of all, we have Mary, and then there were several other women that were involved there. It's interesting that the women were the first to go to the tomb. They wanted to go to the tomb and bring some, uh, some spices to anoint the body. They weren't sure how it was going to happen. They didn't have it all figured out. There was supposedly, there was a huge stone in front of the entrance to the tomb. They had no idea how they were going to open it. But they faithfully came to the tomb. And they found it empty. Empty. And so they go running back to the disciples and they tell the disciples about it. His body's gone. He's not there. Someone told us he's risen. We're supposed to come back and give you this news. And the Bible presents a story that's exactly the way I would be. Huh? What? His body's gone? We were going to go see it later today. 
It's gone. And we find Peter and John running to the tomb. John gets there first. He must have been a faster runner. But he just kind of looks in. He doesn't go in. But then Peter, true to character, you know Peter, he's, he's willing to walk on water if Jesus tells him to. Peter gets there and he goes right on in. And he sees that the body is gone. And it tells us that he doesn't really understand everything. He's still perplexed. He's curious. He's dumbfounded. But Jesus shows up a number of times to the disciples, actually to a total of 500 people, to the 10 disciples. And uh, Thomas is not there. Thomas says, I must touch him for myself. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, when he finally sees him. And what do we find happening to these disciples? Put the sequence of events together. Easter Sunday is 40 days from Pentecost. Does Pentecost bring to your mind Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2 with Peter preaching in the city of Jerusalem with thousands of people. We know there were thousands. Thousands upon thousands of people in Jerusalem still talking about this event that happened. They wondered what happened. And Peter stands up in their midst and starts to explain it. Do you see the transformation that has happened in Peter in just 40 days? Three days before he denied Jesus. Easter Sunday, he was perplexed about Jesus. Forty days later, Peter is preaching the risen Lord and explaining the implications of what this means. This is the Messiah. The one that you have been looking for. He is here. He is risen. It's amazing to see what happened. Something else that would be interesting to find, uh, to, to research, is what happened to each of the disciples. Remember, some people think that the disciples must have known that this whole thing was a hoax or a lie. But they wanted to keep it to themselves. They didn't want anybody to know what had happened. And so they didn't tell anybody for their entire lives. Think about that one for a while if you want to believe that part of, the, of, a, of a theory that someone has. There were 12 disciples. One was Judas, so we're down one. There's 11 now. Of those 11, 10 of them died an unnatural death. Dragged by horses until they died. Put on crosses. Burned. Killed. And you say, well... At least one of them lived to die a natural death. Yeah, that was John. He lived into his 90s, and he was in prison. These disciples went to their death knowing that this story was true. It is interesting to see recently the story, uh, the, 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 the account that came from Chuck Colson. He's a Christian author and writer. Um, when I was very young in America, 
there was, this, there was uh, something that happened called Watergate. And what happened in Watergate, Watergate was, this, was some buildings along the Potomac River in Washington, D.C., some office buildings. And what was happening was there was an election going on for the American president. And one party decided that they were going to sneak into the other party's offices and steal some of that information. That is illegal. And they got caught. Chuck Colson was one of those people who got caught. He was not a Christian at the time. And he says that Watergate, the Watergate break-in, helped him realize the reality of Easter. Because they had about 12 people involved in the Watergate event, and all of them were going to go to prison. Just prison. And by the way, prison in America, you have color TV, three meals a day, shower, nothing like what the disciples had when, when they were put in prison. Those 12 people could not keep the secret for three weeks. And so for the disciples to keep their secret, which is really no secret, they did not try to make it a secret. But if that's your approach, you have to say, why would they die for a lie? It's not true. So I want to ask the question, why is Easter even necessary? Warren Wearsby told us that it's the high priority. It's the center point of Christianity. And I just want to explain very quickly why Easter is necessary. We find in the Bible, the Bible is God's story for us to understand Him and who He is. That God's highest priority is love. When God created Adam and Eve, He spent time with them, had a relationship, loving His creation. When Jesus is asked to summarize the Ten Commandments, He does it how? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see the priority of love? God wants us to have a loving relationship with Him. To have love, there has to be a choice. If there is no choice, there cannot be love. There has to be a choice. If I love my wife, there has to be a choice to not love her. You see, when I selected her among all the many other people, I decided to, follow, to, to love her and her alone as my wife. I made a choice. When we choose to love God, we make a choice. And so God gave Adam and Eve that choice, and you know that choice of the fruit tree in the garden. And they could choose to eat or not eat. And they chose to not eat. And that choice, love has a choice, choices have consequences. The consequence is that they would surely die. They didn't immediately die, but they were separated from God. God no longer met with them in the evening. Choices have consequences. And that consequence means that we are separated from God. And so, Easter brings together these two issues. The consequence 
and the justice. We are separated from God. The consequence is that we're separated. That had to be paid for somehow. And so God sent His Son, the, third, uh, the, the second one in the Trinity, sent His Son to be that sacrifice for us. To pay the price so that we could have that love relationship restored. So Easter satisfies both justice and love. And so now I need to ask you, what is your reaction? What do you do with this? What do you do with this account of Easter? Do you realize the importance? Do you realize the significance of what Easter is? All the scriptures are fulfilled in the resurrection. And because of the resurrection, our lives should change. And so I want to ask you, what will you do with this? And I find that the scripture is perfectly okay with you to ask questions, to investigate. There is no condemnation of Peter and John when they go running to the tomb to find out what's going on. They still have questions. But Peter didn't stop there. He continued to investigate until he got the answer that Jesus is truly alive. It changed Peter's life. And so I want to ask you, where are you in this? Because I would suggest that there's Two categories that we need to consider here. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've already come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. The reality of Easter should give you a strong assurance that you are living and serving a God who is real. And that will impact every day of your life. If you're at the point where you say, I'm still not sure, or I'm just putting pieces together, I would invite you to come to God and say, show me, show me what this is all about. Show me the reality. Because I investigated these things myself. I concluded in my mind that they are true. But it's the relationship with the living God that confirms it every day. In just a moment, we're going to turn it back over to the worship team. And while they are leading us in song, I would invite you to come up here. Most of the front seats are open. Join us in one of these seats, either category. If you want to pray, if you just want to pray and say, Lord, flood my heart with the reality that Jesus is alive. And that changes my life 24-7, 365. I need to put this into practice. You've been talking to me about something. And I want to commit that to you on this Easter day. I'd invite you to come forward and pray. I mean, Peter didn't wait around a whole long time. He went running to the tomb. 
And if you, st- if you still have questions, you still want to investigate it, I'd invite you to come forward too. And there's Christians here, there's people here that have wrestled with these kinds of questions. Just ask your questions and come to the Lord seeking Him in that way. And so I want to pray and then the worship team is going to uh, come up here. And you come forward while they're singing if you want to pray. Lord God, I thank You for who You are. Lord, I thank You for this Easter message. We serve a risen Savior. One who is alive. And Lord, that has implications for our life no matter where we are. If we want to to commemorate this Easter with turning our life over to You in a new area, may people feel free to come and pray. Lord, if people still have questions, I invite them to come forward and pray and seek You and find You. We thank You now in Jesus' name. Amen.